hope you appreciate those lyrics of all those songs we sang this morning. There's such a wide range of such a wide range of songs in terms of even the age of the songs, but the lyrics keep coming home to the same point, putting an emphasis on the eternal, the heavenly, the eternal mindset, the upward vertical mindset that the believer needs to have. You think about even that song, talking about the things we don't know. I don't know what you're doing, it says, but I know what you've done. So you think about that. I don't know how this is all going to play out. We don't know what today brings in terms of the details of the day, the, the trials of the day, the struggles of the day, the things that we'll face today. We don't know that. But we can look back and we can remember and we know what God has already done for us through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, through the provision of his spirit to give us access to a life that would otherwise be possible, a life described by fullness of joy, by the experiencing God's perfect peace, a life of purpose, a life of contentment that it would otherwise be impossible to experience. And then as you look forward, yes, we don't know how today, what today might bring, but we know how the story ends. We know how the story started. And you think about that in this life, in this time that I have here on earth, I know that God is going to be faithful. I do know that. I know that he's going to be present. He's going to be with me. I know that he's given me all things that pertain to life and godliness, that he's gifted me with all that is necessary for me to live the abundant life and experience the life he has planned for me. I know that's true. And I know that those things are fixed and true regardless of whatever today may bring. So that can that give me peace? Can that give me a sense of calm even in the storms that I'm going through? I hope you see that. I hope, you're, I hope those lyrics are really speaking to your soul because there's intended to be a remembrance aspect to music, a teaching aspect to music, a praise aspect to music. And certainly it, it does that as I sing those songs here this morning. Well, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into our text for this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you haven't left us empty-handed, that you haven't left us to our own devices because as we're going to see even this morning, that was a path that led to condemnation, judgment, and destruction. Thank you that you made a way where there was no way for us to be made right with you, even though we completely lack any righteousness of our own. But that you, in showing us that we lack righteousness, intended for us to see our need for the salvation that you provide through the imputed righteousness that we can access only through faith alone, by grace alone, and the finished work of your Son alone, apart from any human works or rituals. Thank you that that message is so clear that it takes us out of the equation asks us to do nothing other than accept by faith what you've already provided as a free gift to us to just take it. And at the moment we take it, you tell us that we're adopted into your family, that we're born again, that we're brought to life, that we're translated from being in Adam to being in Christ, that we're indwelt and sealed by your spirit, and that you'll never let us go. You also tell us that we have a future to look forward to that's going to be spent in your presence with you for all of eternity in a place where there is no sadness where you've made right all of the wrongs that we've experienced here even in this life. Thank you for those promises. Pray that we would live in light of them as we realize that your salvation that you provide is not just from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin to influence and control our thinking and our lives here in the now and now. Pray that we would trust you, keep our eyes fixed on you, focused on you, and enjoy you, and allow your spirit to work in our lives so that we could experience that life that has meaning and purpose right now, not just looking forward to eternity. Pray that you give me wisdom as I speak so that what is said would be accurate 
and clear that would be useful to those who are here this morning. Pray that that would be true with the Sunday school teachers as well. And thank you again for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from our screen, the title of this morning's message is Exchanging Truth for a Lie. Exchanging Truth for a Lie. By way of a little bit of background, when we started our Roman series, we identified the general theme as the gospel of salvation as it relates to many different facets of our human experience. Salvation in every phase of living, and additionally, we identified that there was going to be even some discussion about salvation as it related to the salvation of national Israel, that that would take place in one section that we'll get to in the future. But the theme, a general theme, the gospel of salvation, we explain that the word gospel just means any message of good news. So a good news message of salvation, and again, as it relates to every aspect of living. Now, we noted that the gospel message was said to reveal, at least in part, the righteousness of God. Because in it, we saw in, in verse 16 and 17, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so we say, well, why would God's righteousness be revealed? So to show that God has a righteous standard. Now, beginning with chapter 1, verse 18, and running, it's going to be running through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul began explaining the dilemma that humanity faces as it relates to God's righteous standard and man's complete unrighteousness. So if God's righteous standard is perfect righteousness, and if God is holy and can't be tainted by communion with or fellowship with sin of any kind, and if we're identified as being completely unrighteousness, we used even this phrase that the bottom line was, man lacks the righteousness he desperately needs. So if you think of man being completely unrighteous, and this section this morning is intended to help us reach that conclusion that we all stand rightfully guilty before a righteous and holy God. So if man's side of the equation is complete lack of righteousness, if you were drawing a picture of this for somebody, you might put a picture of a man, and next to the man you might put a negative sign, and then an R, capital R for righteousness. But on God's side of it, if we were to put God up in the sky up here as a triangle representing the Trinity with God maybe written in the middle of it, we could talk about a number of God's attributes, but we'd say that he's one thing. It's a plus righteousness. He's perfectly righteousness. We might put an H there for he's perfectly holy. This is how we would start this conversation if you were going to draw even a picture for somebody about the problem that man faces as sin has separated this unrighteous man from a perfectly righteous and holy God. So as we're thinking about that, that's what's happening here as we're coming into the book of Romans, is Paul is methodically working us towards this inescapable conclusion that nobody is capable of rescuing themselves or securing the type of righteousness that would be required to to have access to a perfectly righteous God. So the bottom line again is man lacks the righteousness he desperately needs. As we kind of jokingly talked about last Sunday, Houston, we have a problem. Summarizing this condemnation that all mankind faces as a result of being identified with the rejection and rebellion against God. Rejection of God and rebellion against God associated now with this outflow of that mentality is then this unrighteous way of living. But the ungodliness, we said, refers to this mentality that rejects God. And then the unrighteousness refers to the actions that then flow from that as it relates to the outflow of our thinking. Now, we also observed last week that the wrath or anger 
That's what wrath or anger that represents God's response to man's rebellion against him, the rejection of him. And that rebellion again was expressed through those terms, ungodliness and, and unrighteousness. And the third term we looked at though was the suppression of the truth. Because we saw that men rightfully face God's wrath because although they knew God, yet they did what instead? They knew God, but they suppressed the truth. And they actively rebelled against and rejected him. Now, this all started with this decision to exchange God's truth for the lie, which we're going to see in our section this morning. This decision to, despite knowing God, to suppress God's truth and respond in ungodliness and unrighteousness. It started with this underlying decision, though, to take the truth that was available and exchange it for the lie. And we'll touch on what that lie refers to. And the ultimate context of that lie, if I was summarizing it, is Satan's lie to mankind that said, in effect, you don't need God, you can be your own God. That's effectively the lie. You don't need God, you can be your own God. In fact, when you think about this idea of suppressing the truth, it's talking about this active effort to not just simply reject God internally, but to actively profess, remember they were professing what they believed to be true, professing their truth, and we're gonna talk about how there's no such thing as subjective truth. But they were professing their truth in exchange for what God revealed to be true, and they did so with the intent to deceive others. It wasn't enough to just be misguided, misinformed, to be wrong, to be ignorant, to be deceived themselves. They had to then push that view on everyone else with the intention, the overt intention of deceiving others. And that is what we're talking about as professing themselves to be wise, they became addled in the mind. And we see that all around us. We're guilty of that in many different ways touch on that in a second. We love to point out how broken the thinking is and confused the thinking is of other people. And sometimes there's low-hanging fruit as it relates to that. They give us some ammunition that you're just like, man, that is so diabolically opposed to what God says is true. They must have completely confused and deceived minds. But then we go about just completely ignoring and making excuses for all of the ways that our thinking is deceived. You see, the nature of deception is that we're, you're unaware of it very often. There's not many people who are intentionally deceived. Sometimes I think it is true, but for the most part, you're deceived because you don't actually know that that's happening. Thinking especially of self-deception. So we'll get into that a little bit. Because the section we're going to be looking at, it illustrates the universal nature of man's lack of righteousness. It's not just some people that have this problem where they lack a righteousness that they can't, they can't secure themselves. All men, not, not some, all men have this problem. And this is going to be developed further for the next number of different lessons as we're talking about overt immorality for the most part here this morning. But we'll talk about morality to some extent. We'll talk about the religious man and how the religious man kind of looks at this but is still having the same exact problem but just it's in disguise. They're not aware of it. So we have this universal nature of man's lack of righteousness and it summarizes various expressions. We're, that's what we're going to get into this morning. The summary of various expressions of man's rejection of truth and rebellion against God. And you're going to see that some of them, maybe more than you'd like to admit, apply to you. 
And hopefully, when you saw that at some point in time in the past, that's what drew you to your need to have a rescuer, a savior, a need to accept by faith God's offer to rescue you and save you from the condemnation that was deserving, that you owed, the the debt that you owed for sinfulness, that you saw that as a result of admitting, I'm broken, I'm flawed, I'm sinful. I see that all have sinned. I see that I'm a part of the all that said there. I see that I'm a part of the there's none righteous, no, not one. I, I see that I'm a part of all All have gone out of their way. There's none that is seeking after God. I see that I'm included in that and that the penalty of that is that I deserve to be separated from God from all of eternity. And so remember that there's somewhat, in a sense of God, even we're gonna talk about this expression, God gave them over. God allowed man to reap the results of their own rejection and their own rebellion. God didn't give up on them. That's not what it meant. It means that God didn't violate their volition, allowed man to deal with and have to live with the outcomes that they chose. But even there's grace in that you're going to see as the fallout of our sinful choices, God even intends to use that in our lives to show man, hey, you need me. Even people getting to a point of complete despair, I think you'll often find that the people most receptive to the gospel message are those that have fallen the farthest from human standards. Sadly, those that have fallen just as far but are trapped in morality and and self-righteousness and false religion, those people often don't see that they have a need. But you know who does? The people who recognize, as we're going to go through these, these lists of things here this morning, they recognize, Houston, we have a problem. I can't save myself. If God gave me what I deserved, I clearly deserve his judgment. I don't deserve his love. But I'm thankful that he extends his love through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and I'll accept that. I'll put all of my eggs in that basket because I see I have nothing to offer God. Let's take a look at this next section of Romans chapter 1. If you haven't turned there, let's turn there together since I haven't turned there either. Okay, we're going to back up to verse 18 and then just in your own devotions, read those first 17 verses too so you'll have a a sense of the flow of thought here. Starting in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, how is that expressed? Through the suppression of truth and accompanying with that suppression of truth are these, is this behavior of unrighteousness is what's referred to there. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. This is why God is so angry at this is that it's not that men didn't have an opportunity to respond to his truth. He revealed his truth. So what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. It's manifest in them, and it's been shown to them. For since the creation of the world, how, you say, was that done? Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Not only are they seen, but they're being understood by the things that are made. What things are being revealed? Even his eternal power and Godhead at a minimum. So what's the conclusion? They are without excuse. Now, further explanation of their being without excuse is this, because although they knew God, that's stated as a fact, they did not glorify him, they didn't recognize him as God, nor were they thankful, 
But instead they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. That expressed itself by professing to be wise. Remember we're talking about that phrase there. Doesn't mean just mentally or internally believing a lie. It means not only believing a lie but insisting that others accept your lies as well. They became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God. We're now saying how did that continue to express itself? Through idolatry. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God. Instead of worshiping him, they started worshiping other things starting with an image made like corruptible man then changing into to birds and four-footed animals and finally creeping things. Verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. One of three times we'll see that phrase, God gave them up, gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This describes them. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And now we have a little bit of a word of praise here. The creator is the one who is blessed forever. Amen. little doxology there. Now verse 26, for this reason God gave them up second time to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, again, we're talking about a general description of the universal rebellion and rejection of mankind. Even as they, mankind, did not like to retain God in their knowledge, now is that expressed individually? Yes. But collectively is what we're talking about, first and foremost, is my view of this. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, meaning, again, they had the knowledge of God, God then, in response, gave them over the third time. We see that to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now, we just got done uh, committing what is shameful, things that are not fitting. That was the first example in 26 and 27. Now, here's a, not, a longer list of the things that are not fitting that are connected to this progressive slide away from God to those who have a debased mind. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, that catches a catch-all to cover everything, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, this is starting to get personal, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. This is going to be a kick in the teeth. They are whispers, meaning gossips. They're gossips. Not to any of you, just to me. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, oof, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to their parents. We should have kept the young people in here this morning. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Now what's the conclusion of that? Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, they know God's truth and they know God's judgment, God's righteous standard, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Man stands guilty. That's the conclusion here. Now, not only do they do the same, they do all of these things, but they approve of those who practice these things. They get to a point where in their rejection of God, not only do they do the things, but they actually celebrate others that are doing these things. All of them, all of these things are described as, un as unfitting. They're not fitting. These are shameful things. And so as you think about man's problem with sin, that's why it's being listed like this, to show man what you'll get to in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. 
this conclusion that everybody is going to stand guilty. When you read through this, the idea isn't to come away with a sense of, I can't believe how ungodly the world is. The, the takeaway of this is, it is not this sense of self-righteous indignation that there's some things you don't struggle with, but other people do. The takeaway is that man has an inability to please God apart from God's intervention on his behalf to provide for man what man could never provide for himself, including, in time, a way of living that would honor God and please him, including a salvation from the penalty of sin in terms of its separating effect, in in terms of the eternal separating effect of sinfulness in terms of God's righteousness and man's unrighteousness. That man would see that I don't have the righteousness that God demands and I'm going to need to get that righteousness from the only one who is right, who is God. He's going to have to provide a way to make me right because I'm not right. Now if you listen to this list and you're just trying to, you know, limit the number of boxes you checked so you feel better about yourself, get over it. That's not what this is about. All right, we better get into this or we're not going to get through it. There's a lot here. First two verses, therefore. Okay, so on, on, the, on the heels of this idea of they continuously are moving in this direction that's further and further away from God, it culminates in a sense in verse 23 with they're now not even worshiping God. They, they knew God, but they did not worship him. That was the idea of 21, 22, and 23. Now, therefore, what is the result of not recognizing and honoring and worshiping God even though man knows about God, God has been revealed? Well, therefore, God, gave, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. Now, how did that present itself what's the first two examples to dishonor their bodies among themselves one two to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever culminating with worshiping themselves with man worshiping themselves and I shouldn't even say culminating with that because that's what it started with is you don't need God you don't need to honor God you don't need to worship God you don't need to recognize God and his position of superiority you can be God you don't need God and that's ultimately what Adam and Eve went for there in the garden we'll touch on that later now we have this word therefore so it introduces God's response to mankind's rejection of God and his truth Now we have this phrase, God gave them up or God gave them over. And it's repeated, like I said, three times. We looked at it as we read through this in these next nine verses. And it refers to God handing man over to the natural consequences of his own choices. So if you're making notes about what that means, it refers to God handing man over to the natural consequences of his own choices. Now these choices are characterized by three descriptions. God gave them over. Two, and then we have three things. Verse 24, uncleanness. Verse 26, vile passions. And verse 28, debased minds. See the progressive downward spiral there. Uncleanness leads to vile passions, leads to a debased mind as it affects every kind of different thinking and behavior that is in violation of what God says is right. Remember that we described things which are not fitting. That's the idea there. So God simply took his hands off, didn't prevent man from doing these things. 
But man's rejection of him produces, although God took his hands off, he let willful rejection of himself produce its ugly results in human life. In human life. That's kind of my favorite summary of this idea of God giving them up or giving them over. God took his hands off and let willful rejection of himself produce its ugly results in human life. Now God actually, again, uses the consequences of sinful actions to cause individuals to see their need for God's salvation. I touched on that earlier. That in itself is grace. Like some people, they look at this, this, this section and they say, God isn't very loving to do this. No, it's, it's in part a reflection of God's grace and love that it wouldn't be love for God to force men to respond to him. That's not love. If you're in that kind of relationship, that's not love. Forcing somebody to respond to you is not love. There, it has to be allowing mankind or allowing somebody to respond of their own free volition to your overtures of love for it to be truly a love response on their part or for it to even be called love to begin with. And so that's sort of the idea here. God's not going to force man to respond to him, but man's rejection of him does produce God's wrath and ultimate, ultimately God's judgment. And so that's what we're building towards is that God didn't force man to respond. Instead, they rebelled and rejected. Here's how it ended up getting expressed. The conclusion is that man was guilty, all mankind, and they needed a righteousness that they did not possess, which God would have to provide. So if I'm losing you, I'm hoping you're getting that big picture as I'm talking through this. Now, the rest of this chapter provides various descriptions of what man's rebellion against God entails and how it is expressed. And this first one was uncleanness. God also gave them up to uncleanness. And this word is used generally of filth of any kind. So we start with these, this sort of general description, uncleanness. Filth of any kind. But most often it's used to refer, refer to Immorality in general and sexual sins in particular. Sexual sins in particular. And so that's where he starts this list. Gives them over to filth of any kind. One of the ways that we see it expresses itself, we're going to get to, is to dishonor their bodies among themselves, which is the tie into the sexual sins in particular. Now in the immediate context of false, the false worship in verses 22 and 23, this may actually referred to sexual immorality that's expressed in connection with temple prostitution because remember in verses 22 and 23 we're talking about the idolatry, how this eventually expresses itself through worship of even inanimate objects, worship of other gods besides the only true God. And as a part of that in this culture that Paul is writing to in Rome, a part of that had involved not only just this false worship, but false worship with all of this sexual immorality and prostitution, temple prostitution that was associated with this expression of rejecting God's truth. Now, the uncleanness was said to originate from the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up to uncleanness, but what was the source of that? The source of that uncleanness was the lusts of their hearts. And so even if you're looking at that word filth of any kind, what causes the filth? What causes the filth is an internal problem. It all starts internally, and then it's expressed externally. Lust is defined as a passionate craving, longing, or desire. The heart refers to man's inward self where feelings, emotions, and thinking occur. It's like the control or command center of the body 
all of the references or most of the references to heart is referring more to thinking, that control center of the inward self of man. So that's where this originates in the lust of man's hearts. Now, it starts internally with this wrong thinking before being manifested externally through wrong behavior. We say that over and over again, and part of the reason that I touch on that often, and I hope you see the, the importance of understanding this, it's because so often we get focused on the expression, on the outflow of the internal thinking, the wrong thinking. But man's problem is not primarily the outflow, though we don't need to whitewash that or excuse that or make, make occasions for our flesh as it relates to that. God is disgusted by it. It's filth and immorality as far as God is concerned. God in his word very clearly enumerates what is right and what is wrong. He gives us a conscience of what is right and what is wrong. So when your conscience is searing you, don't just blow it off and try to brush it under the rug and say, well, it's no big deal. God isn't that concerned about the external expressions of my rejection of him. He is concerned about it. It grieves the spirit of God when we're brushing that under the rug trying to make excuses for ourselves, trying to justify that behavior. But that isn't God's first and foremost concern. First and foremost concern is what is causing that. What is causing that is broken thinking, wrong thinking. And until our thinking can get adjusted, then there's not going to be any victory as it relates to these outward expressions or the way that life is being lived. You talk about repentance, that word metanoia in the Bible is speaking to a change of thinking, a change of mind. It's not about feeling bad for oftentimes it's connected with first tense salvation. You know, repenting of sins, meaning that you're making this commitment to turn away from your sin. Stop sinning so that you can be acceptable to God and God would somehow accept you because you've made this calculated decision that I'm no longer going to sin. That's not what the word is referring to. It's not about turning away from sin. It's about turning away from rejection and rebellion of God to putting my confidence and acceptance and my dependence on what God has done for me through the person and work of his son. But you see, the issue is in the mind, changing our thinking as it relates to spiritual matters. So we have just a nice little touch on that here, that this uncleanness, it originates with the lusts of their hearts. Now, two examples of the expression of uncleanness, which originate again in the lusts of their hearts, they're now given. The first is, the first involves dishonoring their bodies among themselves, dishonoring their bodies among themselves. This refers to sexual immorality, and it provides the context for the expanded discussion of verses 26 and 27. So, there's some other views about even what some of these verses are referring to, but this is our context. It's giving our context for verses 26 and 27 because we're talking about this sexual immorality that is being identified here in terms of dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Now, the second one involves the false worship of creation rather than the creator. Now, what's one part of creation? Human beings, it starts with worshiping false gods. You know, Diana was one of the gods in Rome that they worship. The, the children of Israel worshiped a number of false gods. But it, it leads to ultimately the worship of self. The worship of self as, as part of the creation instead of in, rather than the creator, the one who deserves to be worshiped. Now, these two, as I mentioned, were often combined through pagan worship involving, again, temple 
prostitution. We had the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves and this worship of creation. That's what many of their gods were tied to, aspects of creation. And so as a part of worshiping creation rather than the creator, along with that came this dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now both of these expressions of rebellion involve what? We see they involve exchanging the truth of God for the lie. Now the lie in view is the contention that man should magnify or worship someone or something in place of the true God, and I would add his truth. The mentality that man is justified in worshiping or magnifying someone or something in place of God himself, the true God and his truth. Now, again, tying back to verses 21 through 23. Now, in my view, this connects all the way back to the original satanic lie. And that underlying lie, the underlying lie there is that the creature whether angelic or human, can exist, remember, because this started with Satan himself, an angelic creation, having this idea that he could be God or should be God or should be exalted or elevated like God himself. Now, the underlying lie is that the creature, whether angelic or human, can exist independent of God, self-sufficient, self-directing, and self-fulfilling. That's the lie, that man can exist independently from God. And then the expression of that is being self-sufficient instead of sufficient, finding sufficiency in God. Self-directing instead of having our steps directed by God. Self-fulfilling instead of seeking to fulfill God's will for our lives. And remember the idea there is you don't need God. You can be your own God. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Keep a, keep a uh, finger there in Romans 1. Genesis 3, I want you to see this for yourself, that I'm not just making it up as in terms of paraphrasing that way. We're going to pick up in verse 4, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now this is in the context of asking them, what has God said? And they tell, them, tell Satan what God had said about not eating from the certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, sorry, the tree of life. Verse five. Now what's the lie? Here's the lie. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. Don't eat from this tree. Anything else you can eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from this tree. Anything else, you can eat from it, but not this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Satan come along and say? That was God's revealed truth. What does Satan say? God is lying. That is not true. God really knows that if you were to eat of this, you would be like God. Now, what is he really saying? He's really saying, you don't need God. 
You can be your own God. And you see, idolatry begins when people reject what they know about God. Instead of looking to him as the creator and sustainer of life, they see themselves as the center of the universe, or they seek to become the center of the universe. Now, as we come back to our text in Romans 1, we see that this verse ends, verse 25 ends with, now they did this, but in relation to this description of the creator who should be worshipped, the creator is the one who should be blessed forever. Amen. We refer to that as this quick expression of praise. Some call it doxology. or just relation to God the creator. Paul just even mentioning God the creator, it causes him to say he's the one who should be blessed forever. And then he ends that little prayer with amen. Now move on to verse 26 and 27. Here we have our second expression of God giving them over or giving them up. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Now we had uncleanness, now we have vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, meaning these are talking about the same thing, just like that, likewise men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was do. Now, in my estimation, this is the clearest teaching in the Word of God against homosexuality. These verses represent another example or expression of ungodliness and unrighteousness. They don't represent an exclusive list. They represent an expression of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And for the second time, we see God gave them up or over. God took his hands off and let willful rejection of himself produce its ugly results in human life. Mankind fell under the control of the sinful things they preferred to God. It's just another example of God's unwillingness to violate man's will and force him to do something he does not want to do. But our description here is a description of homosexuality. Homosexuality is being described here. And of course, that word homo means of the same kind. Talking about women with women and men with men. Now, how does God's word describe homosexual relationships here? What are the words that we see? Okay, verse 26. God gave them up to vile passions. They did what is un natural, what was against nature, what was shameful. So vile and natural against nature and shameful. Now this is consistent with other biblical passages on the subject. You can read about them in Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Consistent, but they don't go into this kind of, they're not as clear as this is. This is as clear as it gets. If you're searching the Bible for the clearest text on this, you've got it in front of you right now. See, God's perspective and position on this couldn't be more clear from this passage. It matters not what the world teaches or even others claiming to be Christians teach. God describes this as vile, unnatural, against nature, and shameful. Now, I have to even just read you this. This is the kind of stuff that you can find in churches today. Some people believe that some of you are confused about this. I've gotten, I've gotten, I've had people reach out to me say, I think people in our our church might be confused about this. I give you more credit than that, but maybe I shouldn't. 
Christians, this is from a Christian church. When I say Christians, I have that in quotation marks. Christians can maintain the authority of the Bible and also affirm sexual diversity. Christians can maintain the authority of the Bible and also affirm sexual diversity. Now, if, it's, if man needs to stick handle around something to justify what they want to do, they have no trouble doing it. Now you say, how could they? How could they do that? You're doing that every day. We're some of the best puck handlers in the world, Christians are. We can skate our way and stick handle our way around all the stuff God is trying to convict us about, challenge us about, convince us is wrong in our lives, and we're trying to just skate our way through it and just, I don't want to make those changes. I, I don't want to let you convince me, God, that you have something different for me. I want to figure out some way to get around that. And one way you get around that is you twist Scripture. You come up with all kinds of different things. And you pervert God's truth and you exchange it for a lie. And then not content to do that, you spread that to others. Now, I personally don't happen to believe this is something that's confused in this church. I haven't had any of you ever, not once, say to me that you think this is good that this is God's plan, that this is God's will. Not once. But the Bible couldn't be more clear. Now what do we see the phrase here that comes next? Receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now that refers to the natural result of their sin, which in the context of this example and all those that follow is condemnation and God's deserved judgment. He's not highlighting or trying to highlight a particular or special type of condemnation. This is an example of when men reject God, in, regardless of how it's expressed, the result of that is God's condemnation, God's wrath, God's deserved judgment. Not, not different from God's deserved judgment on all sin and all sinners who refuse to accept the provision of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice and the salvation that Jesus Christ makes available, but all sinners so then you ask yourself, why would Paul start this comprehensive list of various expressions of rebellion with the example of homosexuality? Why would he do that? Because remember the context is suppressing and exchanging the truth of God for lies. That's the context that's been building up to this laundry list of these various expressions of rebellion and rejection. Now what better way to reject God's truth than to attack the truth God reveals in the very first chapters of the Bible? See, mankind is defying what God declares to be true in the very first pages of Scripture when it comes to these things. Turn to Genesis again. Chapter 1, verse 27. The Bible does not stutter on these matters. Now, the Bible can make things uncomfortable. In the sense that many people want to equate enlightenment or progress, illumination, with coming to accept these things. And you must be old-fashioned. You must be a bigot. You must be filled with rage and hate towards people if you won't accept 
man's attempts to redefine God's truth. Truth is not subjective. God's truth is revealed in his word and through the spirit of truth. You cannot get truth anywhere else. It does not matter what other Christians say about that. It does not matter what the world says about that. Genesis 1.27. God does not stutter. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Did God stutter? There are two distinct genders, friends. For all of human history, nearly all of human history, that was an accepted fact. Not just by believers, just a straight up accepted fact. It is not progress to try to redefine the word of God in all of human history to say that's now not true. Man subjectively determines for himself these matters. No, that's not what God says. Turn to chapter 2, verse 18. Another thing that's under attack as much now as probably it's ever been. Although, remember in the context, homosexuality was more rampant in Rome than it ever has been in this country in the day that Paul is writing. So don't get on this little thing where you're feeling sad for yourself all the time, moping around saying, oh, I can't believe how disgusting this world I have to live in is. Give me a break. The evil is inside you, for starters. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's you. That's me. So be careful. Be careful about how you look at other people and have this sense that, oh my goodness, the world is so evil now. No, it is. But it's just a continuation of what we've got from the very first chapters of Scripture as man exchanges God's truth for the lie in chapter 3 of Genesis. And that's, we're talking about 4,000 years, no, 6,000 years of human history. Chapter 2, verse 18. God defines marriage as taking place between a man and a woman, period. God does not stutter as it relates to these matters. Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Okay, now what did that consist of? Chapter 2, verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, this is a description of the first marriages, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Nobody was confused about this. People perverted this, but it's not confusing. Next one, appropriate sexual relationships are to take place exclusively within those marriages. Now, does that mean people don't fail? Yeah, people fail. People don't get this right. Does God, is God condemning you, in a sense, in an ongoing way for this? No. He's saying, this is why you needed me. Now, once you're aware of what my truth is, would you be willing to trust me with these matters? Would you be willing to do things my way? Would you be willing to follow the plan that I have for successful homes, for successful marriages, for successful sexual relationships? Would you do that? Would you, would you believe that I know what's best? Verse 25, and they were both naked, and the man and his wife 
the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, there's clearer passages, but I just want to show how this is in the very beginning of Genesis that we're seeing these things. That's a reference to the intimacy and the sexuality that men and women were able to enjoy as God intended, in partnerships that were for life between men and women as God made men and women. Now, we could go on with this. I'm not going to. I want you to remember this because this is, I've, I've seen a natural tendency even in Christian circles as it relates to this to really focus on the things that we're not guilty of in a greater measure than we focus on the things we struggle with. The Bible does not present homosexuality as an expression of sinfulness that is any worse than any other sin. I don't accept that, even as you look at this passage. It's not intended to communicate that. It's, it's an example that is a most vivid example of man rejecting the very core and foundational truths that God had revealed to man. That's all that this is about as you look at these verses. This is the breaking things down, breaking God's truth down at the very core base level. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in fact, homosexuality, it's only mentioned, again, always negatively, but in six passages total. Six passages. It's directly addressed in only what I would consider to be three of them. Directly addressed and distinctly forbidden. Directly addressed, distinctly addressed, and forbidden. Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, and this passage we just read. Now, in two passages, it's mentioned as part of longer lists of many examples of behavior that is sinful or unacceptable to God, very similar to this, and also written by Paul. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, it's mentioned just after fornicators and just before liars. So have a little context there. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, it's mentioned just before theft, covetousness, and drunkenness. In the same breath, it's referenced indirectly in a negative light in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, 1 through 10, and that's it. That's it. For how much we talk about it, because it's not something that has been rampant in the local church, for how much we talk about it, like to kind of giggle about it as we see people struggle with this in a sense, have the complete wrong attitude of it, have a disdain for people, look down on people, condemn and judge people, not just make a judgment that what they're doing is wrong, but actually to see them as vile and disgusting and speak of them as such, instead of souls that God desperately loves, that he wants us to love as he loves them. We, we get fixed in on these kinds of things. I've never heard, I've never, you, I'll tell you what, if I heard Christians talk as much about their problems with pride as they did about the problems the world has with transgenderism, we'd be light years ahead. Light years ahead. Our, our biggest problem is pride. That we are not willing to accept God and his truth and allow him to direct and lead and empower our lives to let him be the focus. Our problem is that we're so full of ourselves that we can't let God have, get his way in there and have access to our thinking and then our lives in a way that he could use. But just compare this. How many times do you think fornication is mentioned in the Bible? I don't even have them all, I guarantee it. 
but 43 times. Six times homosexuality is mentioned, 43 times just general fornication. We call that word, the word in Greek is pornea. The word we get pornography from. 43 times. I would submit that's a much greater problem for our church than homosexuality or transgenderism. How many times do you think adultery, not being faithful to our spouses, is mentioned? 45 times. Remember, to six. 35 references to covetousness, 158 references to pride, and we could go on and on. Don't get the wrong idea about these matters. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, unmerciful, who knowing... No, I messed up something there. Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Now the summary, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only they do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. They know that this is true, yet they do it anyway. And unless you would say, oh, homosexuals deserve God's wrath and death, but not everyone else, that's why he puts this conclusion at the end of verse 32, when the conclusion was intended to be that all men stand guilty before a holy God. Now, verse 28, it sets up verses 29 through 31. The idea in verse 28, go back to it here, idea in verse 28 is, Since mankind decided to reject God, not acknowledge him, not glorify him, not cling to his truth, he abandoned them to foolish, that just means worthless or unacceptable thinking, and let them do things that should never be done. That's sort of the summary here of what we're going to see in this list from 29 through 31. So in response to that, for the final time we see God gave them up or over. The idea is God took his hands off again and let willful rejection of himself produce its ugly results in human life. Now verses 29 through 31 then represent comprehensive examples of this universal expression of ungodliness and unrighteousness by natural men who are doing what? The natural man who is suppressing the truth. Now we have this exhaustive list of examples. We're going to go through it pretty quickly. Being filled with all unrighteousness. That just refers to anything that violates God's standard of right. But it focuses more on man's actions or improper conduct. Then we see the second thing is sexual immorality. And that's any expression of sexuality outside of marriage. It's where the word pornography comes from. This is what God came up with. Human beings reject that. But yet that's what God came up with. Okay, well, you got a choice to make, right? It's accept God's truth or don't. Is there always reconciliation available with God? Is there always restoration available with God? Yes. 
If you're convinced or convicted about these things, then let God make a change in your life. Make an adjustment and then do things His way. Not through your own strength, but as His Spirit empowers you to now live life His way. That's the response to these things. And I say that because the statistics are staggering as it relates to pornography, as it relates to sexuality outside of marriage. Absolutely staggering. And this is even statistics from people who are polled who are, quote, Christians, who go to church. It's all around us. You cannot watch television without something being intimated, meaning it's at least hinted at, otherwise, or overtly discussed or shown. The sexualization of people, I guess, as a whole, younger and younger people, commonplace, look at the outfits that these kids wear now. Is that an expression of God? Is that an expression of God's truth permeating the atmosphere of the world that we live in? No, it's an expression of ungodliness. I coach junior high girls basketball. I'm staggered sometimes by the things that kids wear to school nowadays. Is that their biggest problem though, friends? Is their biggest problem that they're gonna get frostbite? when they walk to school? That's, is, is, there, is that their biggest problem? Their biggest problem is they need the Savior. The number one thing they need from me is not my condemnation. They don't, they don't, even, they don't even explicitly, not being their parent, they don't even me, need me to try to take them to task on these matters, though the, the program does have a dress code as it relates to traveling to games and playing in games. But that's not the, the major thing they need from me. They need to see the light of Jesus Christ through me so that they could be saved. This is real stuff, friends. This is a real problem for many people. Now, is the conclusion of this seeing that I'm guilty, not just that I was guilty, but I remain guilty, I remain unclean, is the, is the intended result of that to just go bury your head in the sand? and to wallow in misery and, and continued sinfulness? The conclusion is to take your eyes off of yourself and look to God with this posture that says, God, help me. I need you. I want to trust you and keep my eyes focused on you so that your spirit can give me victory over myself, over the world, over the devil that's constantly trying to bombard me with these things. Next one on the list is wickedness. Just refers to depravity and perversion. Next one is covetousness. Desiring or fixating on what other people have. Show of hands? Should we just, as we're going through this, can we just get a show of hands? <laughs> people just love to fixate on what they're not having a problem with, right? All right. How about maliciousness? Just means ill will or malice. Do you mean people ill will? Do you feel ill will towards people where you kind of are hoping, kind of cheering for their failure? How about full of envy? How many hands we got? No? Okay. Full of envy. Murder. To hate somebody in your heart, Jesus says, is equivalent to murder. Strife. Who's causing strife in their life? Who, who's, who's being a problem in their relationships? Who's causing strife in this church? 
Is that a problem for man? Yeah, we naturally cause division. We sow seeds of discord. That's what we do. How about deceit? Evil-mindedness, just a general mind that's not godly. But these ones I love. They are whisperers. They are gossips. Man. If we, we, we are gossips. We are whisperers. We just love to talk about all of the latest juicy stuff. What if we whispered about God's truth instead? How about backbiters? This is, refers to anyone who attacks another person's reputation. That's something that comes naturally too. Haters of God. Remember, you can't love God and love the world at the same time. While you're loving the world, you're hating God. This isn't something that Christians are, are saved from permanently. That's why this book is not just about salvation that God provides from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin to influence us as we talk about sanctification, living a life that's set apart or godly in time. Pick up the pace here. We have violent people. We got the proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. One translation here, this is my favorite one in the list, by the way. They invent new ways of sinning. Show of hands. <laughs> they invent new ways of sinning, like in case you weren't covered by the rest of this. And then we have this universal statement, disobedient to parents. <laughs> I mean, come on. But then this this list of things that we're all struggling with. We don't have discernment, so we have undiscerning. Apart from God giving us discernment, we have none. Untrustworthy. Are you trustworthy? Follow through with all the things that you say you'll do? Unloving. Oh, I love so many people. I just can't stand them. Unforgiving. Come on. This is one that we struggle with. Unmerciful. Now remember, this section is intended to demonstrate that all men lack the righteousness that is needed for salvation. And are you convicted by this? Are you convinced by this list? So be careful of the danger of what I call selective outrage and indignation. Be careful of the danger of selective outrage and indignation as it relates to other people's sin while being quick to ignore, excuse, and overlook your own sin, your own problems. Now let's see 30, thir verse 32. Here's our summary for this morning and for this chapter. Who, these people, man, referring to mankind, they know the righteous judgment of God. They know that those who practice such things are deserving of death, yet not only do the same things, but also approve of those who practice the same things, who practice them. Now remember, the conclusion that Paul is building towards is that all men stand guilty before a holy and righteous God and that all men are without excuse. So the idea here is they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway, and worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Now this verse highlights the willfulness of man's rebellion. This wasn't sin through ignorance. This wasn't sin through accidental disobedience. Notice how this progression of confusion and, confusion and rebellion against God, notice what it involves. It starts with proclaiming a lie. Then it, it moves to normalizing that lie and promoting its general acceptance. Third step is now insist that others affirm it as true. A lie that was then normalized and promoted as generally acceptable, now insist that others affirm it as true. Then step four, then collectively celebrate the lie, and the last step is to silence any opposition or resistance to that lie. Anyone seeing this playing out? 
That is the progression. That's what, that's what you're up against if you want to stay true to God's truth. Now, are you starting to see this universal, the universal nature of man's righteousness problem? How we don't have this righteousness that we desperately need? It doesn't take much to convince people who are honest with themselves. There are all sorts of areas in your life where you can see your unrighteousness. It's difficult for people who are self-righteous, though, to see that they have the same problem as everyone else. And this section, it focused on obvious examples of sin or overt immorality. Paul will continue this section by addressing the less obvious issues of sinfulness despite the presence of morality or religion. That's still an expression of rebellion and rejection of God. But thankfully, we're going to continue to see that while the gospel message begins by revealing man's need, it then proceeds to declare God's solution to meet man's need. It's not just about Houston, we have a problem. It's God has a solution to meet man's problem. And the hint is that the needed righteousness that man lacks is going to be supplied by God. You got that? That's the hint of where we're going here. God is righteous. God has a righteous standard. Man lacks that righteousness, but God is going to supply the righteousness that is needed by man but lacked by man. He's going to be the one who supplies that needed righteousness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that we could just be reminded of the pit that we were all dug from and continue to be dug from in the sense of practical or experiential victory over the power of sin seeking to influence our thinking in our lives. Pray that we wouldn't have selective indignation. Pray that we wouldn't try to make ourselves out to be better than everyone around us, but we would see just how broken we are and be reminded that we needed you then, we need you now, and you want to shine your salvation light into the lives of people who are living in a crooked and perverse world. Pray that you could use us as those lights as we would get our eyes off of our circumstances and ourselves and the horizontal plane and we would go vertical with our thinking, with our minds. We would stay our minds on you and look unto Jesus, the author,